0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. The story of a family that's been separated by the U.S.-Mexico border for more than six years. Actor Jim Brochu discusses playing the part of Zero Mustel in his one-man show. What is Food from the Radical Center? An interview with agricultural ecologist and author Gary Paul Nabhan. And I'll talk with Giovanni Zope about keeping his family's circus legacy alive. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. There is no special dispensation given to undocumented individuals in the U.S. who have children on this side of the border. Having an American-born spouse also offers no protection from deportation. While large numbers of deported parents continue to fight to get legal status and be reunited with their American children, the Center for Migration Studies reports that a growing number have stopped fighting and have simply accepted they may never be able to live in the same country as a family. AZPM's border and immigration reporter Nancy Montoya has the story of a family of four that we're calling the Sanchez family. They say using their real names could cause them problems in the future.
1: Now it's late on a Friday afternoon at the Morley Footgate in Novales. Carmen Sanchez fidgets with her purse and phone. She's nervously waiting on the US side for her two teenage children to cross from Mexico back into the US. It's been a struggle, it's been a struggle, especially, you know, uh, because the kids don't have their dad 24/7. For the past six years, their father, Diego, has been living across the border in Nogales, Sonora. He was deported in 2012. He and Carmen were already married with two small children. Diego, what did that do to your life and your family life from one day to the next? It changed the whole thing and screws up real big time And, and especially the kids because they're really used to me. You know, I used to take them to school, to their practice and all that stuff. When Diego was 13, he's now 40, his mother brought him illegally into the U.S. He even went to high school in Arizona. It's right there on 35th and Roosevelt in Phoenix. Uh It's car hanging. And then I graduated and then I went to college to PC and then I started working and I was doing like anything and you know like anybody else but I was doing everything legal. Legal except for being in the US without proper documentation. Diego made a living buying cars at auctions, fixing them up and then selling them for a profit. He was on his way to an auction when he was stopped for speeding. At least that's what a Maricopa County Sheriff's Deputy wrote in his report. The Sanchez family called it racial profiling. And at that time, uh, Jorah Pyle was, you know, the sheriff, so he was, going strong on his law. Now, as you may remember, the U.S. Department of Justice sued Sheriff Arpaio, accusing him of running the worst racial profiling operation in U.S. history. President Trump later pardoned Arpaio. At any rate, for the Sanchez family, the damage was done. Are you angry? Do you feel resentful? What, you know, at night when you think about your kids and you think about the life you had, are you angry? I'm not angry, i just disappointed somehow, but angry, no. But we're trying to manage things. And they are managing by having Carmen drive their children from Phoenix to Nogales at least once a month to spend a couple of nights with their dad in Mexico. Diego says that time with his son and daughter are precious, and staying angry would only serve to hurt his children. Here's Diego Junior, now 15. Is that time important to you? I got to see him, don't see him that often. When I do, it's it's, it's fun. 14-year-old Cassandra says she needs her father and will never abandon him.
2: Yeah, and it's pretty hard because, I mean,
1: you can't spend the time you want with your family together. How do you be a father on the other side of the border? Well, it's kind of hard though, I mean, being not there for that you know 24 7 it's you know they need me all the time and so the parents have made a very simple yet powerful promise to their children that even though they live in two countries they will always remain one family at the border i'm nancy montoya arizona public media max let's face it we'll never find it
0: Uh, oh, we'll never find her, huh? We'll never find it. Huh? We'll never find her. Huh? We'll never find her. Huh? We'll never find the sea of Bian Star and Leo Mio. Actor and artist Zero Mostel had a very memorable screen and stage presence. A large man with bright, piercing eyes and a booming voice. Even his comedic roles seemed powered by by a bottled-up anger, as if he could make his audience laugh through sheer willpower. But behind this forceful approach, there was nuance and subtlety, and the heart of a man who loved life deeply, even though Mostel's personal story was often tragic. Since 2006, New York actor and artist Jim Brochu has been exploring the complicated character of Zero Mostel in a one-man show called Zero Hour which he is performing at the Invisible Theater in Tucson this weekend.
3: Zero was a very angry man. And in fact, the last couple of minutes of the play, I go into, as Zero, why I am so angry. I had the privilege of getting to know Zero when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I went to see my mentor, who was an actor named David Burns, in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And here was Zero Mustel, who I had never heard of before. Well, I tell you, Mark, that curtain went up, he came out, and I felt like somebody had stepped on an accelerator that just pushed me back in my chair. The energy that this man put forth on the stage, and I went backstage to see Davy. Who do I run into? I mean, run into physically with Zero Mustel. <laughs> And I went to a boarding school, so I had a military uniform on. And he was soaking wet, like he had just gotten out of a shower, but it was just perspiration from the performance. And he looked at me in my uniform and he said, "Who are you, General Nuisance? What are you doing here?" And I said, "I came to see to see my friend, Mr. Burns." Well, you never come to see me. And I said, "Well, can I come to see you?" He said, "Yes, you must come to see me if you come to see Mr. Burns." And he was gone, and left my heart just pounding couple of weeks later, I went back to see Forum for a second time. I went back to see Davy Burns, and I thought, well, Mr. Mustell said I should go visit him. And Mark, when I went back to visit him, he was just reading the riot act to one of the actors. I mean, screaming at him through, upstaging him for, for something. Uh, the actor's name was David Evans, so I'll never forget it. And he finished uh, yelling at David, and David walked away. And he looked at me, and he said, Oh, Sergeant Brochu! thank you so much for coming to see me. And the, the change was astonishing, but that was my first encounter with Zero Mostel.
0: Jim, take us back to when you were writing Zero Hour. What were the elements that you were most intent on getting into the play about Zero's public and private life?
3: The three things that I wanted to point out that I thought were most dramatic were the fact that he was shunned by his family for marrying outside the religion, that he was persecuted by the federal government uh, for being a left-wing activist at one time and couldn't work, and then he almost lost his leg in a bus accident uh, about a year before forum opened. And so it was those three elements that I say: like, how do you get over these things and keep going? And so he was kind of an inspiration, and he did it with great humor and 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 I might say craziness. And when I finished writing the play, the first person I sent it to was Josh Mustel, uh, who I really didn't know. We had met at one point. We knew of each other. But I wanted him to read it. And um, so he wrote back to me. He said two things. Zero never would have said "capish," which I had used in the play. And you spelled plaudus wrong. And those were the only two comments <laughs> he, he had. He did not want to see the play. He made that very, very clear that he didn't think anybody could pull it off. Uh, He thought it was a very good play of itself, but he wasn't about to see it. Well, I tell you, Mark, about five years later, he came to see it, and he said, you really did it, that you you were able to capture my father, and I didn't think anybody could. So that was probably one of the great compliments, and he said, and you hit the three things about religion, politics and, um, you know, show business that he would have done in the play himself.
0: It sounds like some of the choices that Zero Mostel made in his life put him in the position of being alienated and uh, sometimes persecuted for the things that he apparently felt the strongest about.
3: Zero was first and foremost an artist. He was a painter. He said, I only do comedy. I only act so I can buy more paint. He loved the solitary life. He had a studio on West 28th Street. He shared it with two other painters who'd never talked to each other. They were just there working. So I don't think Zero really cared if he alienated uh, anyone or not. And the play, by the way, takes place in his art studio. During the course of the play, which is Zero being interviewed by an unseen interviewer from the New York Times, he actually paints a picture of the interviewer. So I actually paint a complete portrait at every show. Uh, I, I do an oil painting, uh, and that's what Zero lived for was his artwork. He spent, you know, hours and hours every day, you know, fifteen hours in his studio. So, so that's what he did. And he was a solitary man. I think he alienated his children. He alienated his friends. Um, he was. He was something else.
0: The 1950s and the rise of Joe McCarthy and uh, the Red Scare really reverberated throughout the artistic community. Tell us something about how Zero Mostel weathered the period of the House Un-American Activities Committee.
3: Zero didn't have a huge film career. One of the people he alienated when he first got to Hollywood was Louis B. Mayer, who fired him from his MGM contract. So he was already on shaky ground when it came to the movies. The blacklist did not affect the Broadway theater as much as it did film and television. And he had a very dry spell on television uh, throughout the whole 50s. I think he did maybe one or two very low-budget independent films. And the rest of the time, he made his money by painting. He sold his paintings. And that's how he got through it. And then things started to change about 1959 uh, with um, about getting back on television with a show called The World of Sholem Aleichem, which was a PBS um, uh, television produced drama here in New York City uh, that used only blacklisted actors. Lee Grant was in it and, uh, you know, uh, Jack Guilford and a bunch of those other people. And that's when it started to break. So And and he had his wife, Kate, who was working all through uh, that time. You know, the kids said it was tough. The 50s were were tough, but um, they got through it.
0: Jim, what is something that you truly hope that an audience member will take home with them in their heart or their mind from seeing Zero Hour?
3: Well, I hope they leave holding their sides from the laughter. And I also hope that they leave knowing that you can really get through any obstacle with love and with humor and with just belief in yourself that you're, you're going to get through, as he did.
0: The Invisible Theater presents my guest, Jim Brosheu in Zero Hour at the Berger Performing Arts Center this Saturday at 7.30 and Sunday at 3 p.m. Tucson-based author Gary Paul Nabhan is a world-renowned agricultural ecologist and ethnobotanist. He says restoring our lands can bring people together, regardless of differences like race and politics. Here's Tony Paniagua with the interview. Dr. Gary Nabhan, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Great to be here with you, Tony. You
4: have authored or been the editor of more than 30 books. What inspired you to write your most recent book?
2: Well, Food from the Radical Center is really a compilation or reflection on 20 years of work, not just here in Tucson, but with communities all around North America trying to use food to heal issues in their communities and to heal the land. This is a good news book that uh, collaborative conservation has made an impact that most people may not realize because it's not the environmental movement that tries to stop things. It's the people quietly working on the ground to heal things. And by healing uh, erosion features in the land like arroyos and getting together in those trenches and working together, a lot of our differences ideologically and otherwise disappear. And so my goal is to say that at this point in American history, our countries really divided. Politicians can't solve that problem. We have to solve that problem. And one way to do that is not just talking about the problem, but really working together on the ground and getting to know each other.
4: Is that what you mean by food from the radical center?
2: That's right. Uh, Bill McDonald, a rancher in Cochise County, coined that term radical center as a place where people from the left or the right or immigrant and native come together to find common ground and realize that they share a lot of common values that allow them to work together. And sometimes by focusing on our common values rather than our differences, we make progress in deeply getting to know one another uh, that then generates other benefits.
4: One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that uh, being a fan of geography, being a fan of different locations and people, you did it. You went to multiple locations throughout the country And uh, you talked about fish on the East Coast, about plants on the West Coast, but you have some local examples as well. One of them is with the Navajo churro sheep. What would you like to say about that?
2: Well, years ago, about uh, 30 years ago, uh, Navajo sheep herders and Hispanic sheep herders in Arizona and New Mexico who had never gotten together, who were perhaps even suspicious of one another because of... Issues that happened centuries ago with the Pueblo Revolt, uh, where uh, Native Americans took a stance against the Catholic Church and the arrival of Hispanic colonists. Those people got together and said, "You know, sheep have been part of our cultures for over 300 years. Are endangered now. There's less than 500 left on the earth. And what can we do to work together to bring them back?" And they formed an organization called the Navajo Dash. Churro Sheep Association that sort of honored both the Native American and Hispanic traditions. And they've worked together on the conservation of this rare livestock breed ever since.
4: Another aspect of restoration deals with plants. And you mentioned the white Sonoran wheat.
2: That's right. Uh, white Sonora wheat is uh, the first wheat introduced to North America by Spanish missionaries, first in Baja California, but then it spread to Sonora and Arizona. Durango and Chihuahua and even California and Oregon. So it's not just a weed of Sonora or Sonoran indigenous or or Hispanic peoples. It had a widespread distribution and it fed both sides of the Civil War. The rebels and the Yankees gave them their only source of wheat for bread during the Civil War because all the fields in Kansas and Missouri and Oklahoma were in flames at that time. And um, within the last 10 years, Native American, Hispanic, and Anglo bakers, farmers, and millers have brought that wheat back, and it's available every day of the year in Arizona, microbreweries, restaurants, and uh, farmers markets.
4: And why are you so fascinated by local foods and cultures and how they mix? You're an ethnobotanist. You're an agricultural ecologist. You're really passionate about this. What is it?
2: Well, in ways, I'm not a foodie. I'm more interested in the cultural benefits of these foods, how they bring us together, how we save biodiversity in a way that also regenerates our goodwill among one another. So most of these stories are of people getting over differences through sharing food at a common table, which, uh, is one way that uh, Christians talk about their communion or Eucharist rites, but nearly every faith group in the world and every ethnicity and and creed has something where you bring strangers together with you at the table and you learn about one another. So this book isn't so much about the food as the human uh, empathy that is generated when we work together to restore the soil, water, fish, or forageable plants, like you mentioned.
4: Are you optimistic about the future when it comes to land restoration and cooperation among different groups?
2: Through traveling to write this book, I've come back with more hope and more gratitude for the many cultures and the work they're doing with food in the land than ever before. I think these are the kind of people that will get us through these dark times.
4: What's your next project? You stay really busy.
2: I am uh, writing a book about the... Syrian farm workers who've been displaced, and the seeds that they once grew uh, that have also become refugees in the world. And that's taken me back to Lebanon and Syria, where my own family came from. And I'm relating it to larger issues that are happening in the world right now, where people displaced by warfare and drought from climate change are some of the most uh, food insecure people in the entire world.
4: Dr. Gary Napheim, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you again, Tony.
0: Family legacies can be difficult to maintain, but my next guest is keeping alive a dream that began in 1842 when a French clown met a ballerina in Hungary, and they ran away together to Venice. They started a family and a circus. Those were Giovanni Zope's great-great-grandparents. Today he leads the Zope family circus on a seemingly never-ending tour of North America. I spoke with Giovanni Zope as the circus ended a series of performances in Chandler and headed southeast to Tucson.
5: The style of the Zope circus is authentic traditional European, gypsy, Italian. Our roots date back to 1842, the Veneto, which is uh, the region that that Venice is in. My father was actually born in Veneto, so we use a lot of of, uh, Eastern European music, uh, Italian folk music, gypsy music. Uh, It helps give the feel of true European circus back 100 years ago.
0: About how many people are in the circus now and how many of them are zopes?
5: On the lot today, we have 42 artists and crew members uh, that are performing with our show. All of the artists on our show set up our tent and take our tent down, and all of the crew become part of the show as well. By Blood Family, there's about approximately uh, eight of us now, uh, nine of us on the show, three generations. Every year, the show changes. We have a brand new show this year. It's phenomenal, and it's about uh, joining countries together and, and being united. It's like... Festival Internationale, it's all the countries blended together so that we all become one united world. Um, of course, you have horses and dogs and aerial and trapeze and jugglers and everything you expect from a circus, but it's even more than that. We step back in true tradition of, of, um, of circus.
0: Approximately how many different hats have you worn, so to speak, in performing with the Zope Circus, and what, what do you enjoy doing the most?
5: Well, I started performing when I was was born, basically a year old. At two years old, I broke away from my uh, babysitters and walked in the ring and took a bow um, (laughs) because I heard my family's music on. And the only thing is I was completely naked, (laughs) but they don't let me do that anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, I bet you made an impression though. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah.
5: But since then, from that day until today, I've performed in every show. When you're a baby or when you're an uh, elderly person, you know, you perform whenever you want. You don't have to perform when you want. But, so, I mean, I've done trapeze. I've done horses. I've done juggling. I do unicycle. I do trampoline. I do aerial. I do uh, ground backs. I do teeter board. My biggest joy of performing, uh, no matter what it is, is when I walk in a ring and I'm doing something and I look at another the audience and I see three or four different generations of audience members smiling and giggling at the exact same thing that I'm doing. But obviously it's different for each generation because they all see it in a different way. So that gives me gratitude and happiness and joy.
0: Well, outside of the Zilpe family bloodline, tell us about some of the people who have joined the circus over the years. Do you still have the occasional person who wants to run away with the circus?
5: <laughs> Absolutely. We're in Wiggenberg, uh two three weeks ago. And a 21, 22-year-old boy showed up as we were loading up the show and said, I'm here to work. I said, okay, go to work. So he grabbed the hammer and started working. And he's still with us now. (laughs) He spent the night on the the lot in in one of our crew trailers. And then uh, the next morning, his parents came and dropped the bag off, and we left and came to Chandler. People running away with the circus, and uh, yesteryear was a lot more popular than it is today. But we still have some people that um, do want to do that. I have a a boy, a young boy, and is eight to ten years old in Chandler, and he did our circus camp there. But he just wrote me a letter and begged me to hire him. Said, <laughs> "Please, my dream, my all-time dream is to perform in your circus." <laughs> so when his parents allow him, he'll be with me. I'm sure.
0: Well, as much as is possible, it it almost sounds like the Zope Circus has roots here in Arizona. What would you describe as your connection?
5: Yes, we have very strong roots. We've been here in Chandler for, well, we've worked in Chandler for 10 years. We've worked in Tucson for eight years. It feels like when we come back to Arizona every year, it just feels like we're coming home again. I mean, we come for the holidays. There's so many great dance studios there, and so many, there's like two or three different circus schools there. The All Souls Festival you have there, I have great friends that work with that, that are part of that. It's just the community there in, in Tucson is absolutely fabulous. I just, all, I was there for the, uh, two and a half months last year. I stayed in your wonderful community.
0: Can you share with us a tradition that you have either before or after a show? Is there is there any particular good luck ritual or something that you or uh, members of your company like to do?
5: My grandmother used to do this and we still continue it now. You take, at the end of a performance like at the end of our performance here in, in uh, Chandler, I come with a little jar and I take a little bit of shavings out of the ring. And now when we set the ring up in tucson and we put the shavings in a ring i'll dump that shavings inside the ring so it continues on it's just the tradition of circus continues it's not it's part of the old and it's part of the new it's not in the middle it's not old it's not new it's it's a continuation of our tradition so some of the shavings that they took out of the ring in the 20s or 30s is still going in our ring today
0: my guest was giovanni Zope. The Zope Family Circus will be performing in front of the Mercado San Augustin from January 11th to the 20th with shows every day except Mondays and Tuesdays. The circus kicks off their stay in Tucson with a value show aimed at younger kids this Friday, January 11th at 10 a.m. You can see an Emmy Award-winning television story about the Zope's legacy right now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app, NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.